God is infinitely holy. There's like eight of you that believe it. God is infinitely holy. Oh man, that's better. The online audience heard that. Welcome if you're watching online, by the way. Because he is holy, we write songs about him. Holy, 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 the, the trifecta. Isaiah chapter 6 says that Isaiah stood in the throne room of God and he heard things not fitting for man to hear like the seraphim calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as a result of that, the, the thresholds of the temple shook like an earthquake. And Isaiah said, woe is me for I'm undone for my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of glory. When something in the Bible is declared holy, it's usually attached to a person or some object. When something is declared holy, holy, it's off the charts. But when something is declared holy, 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 it's because of the lack of the ability to describe how awesome it is. Holy, holy, holy was taken by that songwriter and ascribed to God because we fall short, it's the best we can do, so we only can echo what the seraphim say in heaven. He is, he is awesome. So we also sing songs about the sheer magnitude of God's love. And, and we write about the magnificence of it. Oh, love of God, how measureless and strong, right? We know that one. But you rarely ever hear somebody do this. Oh, wrath of God, how measureless. Because nobody wants to write songs about the wrath of God. We like the holiness, we like the love, we like the mercy. But the wrath of God, you're not going to find many people doing that. If you're new here to New Hope, you might be wondering, what in the world did I just walk into? <laughs> We're working our way through the book of Romans. And I'm going to invite you right now to turn to Romans chapter 1. We, we've made it to verse 17 last week after six weeks. And this is uh, part 6B, uh, we'll call it, okay? And we get into verse 18 this morning. And in verse 18, we start hearing about the wrath of God. And we're going to find ourselves spending the bulk of our time exploring the wrath of God this morning. And if that immediately weighs you down, let me start with a happy note, and I'm going to end with a happy note. So here's, here's the good news. Let's start here, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Somebody say amen. amen. That's good news, right? That's good news. Christ died for us because we were sinners. God sent him. Demonstrated his love. Verse 9, though. Much more than, Paul says, much more. Even, even more than that. Look at that. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's good news. Take that to the bank. That's the rescue. That's God's doing. And so we praise God that he's given a way to restore the relationship that was lost. How does he do it? By justifying us. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, maybe you don't consider yourself as a person who really has a relationship with God, but you're checking this out. You're kind of curious about that. What you hear this morning, if you accept it, 
If you believe this, you can be certain, according to God's own promise, that you can be rescued from the wrath of God. That's something to really pay attention to. So as we walk into this, I need to pray with you before we dare take on verse 18. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you recognizing that what we are about to look at, even though it's been in your word for 2,000 years, it may be brand new to some individuals this morning. And for those of us to whom it's not brand new, we need to be reminded. So, Father, I pray, I, I invite, I ask, I implore you. Give us a measure of your grace as we invite your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and guide and help us to see this the way that you intend us to see it. Speak, Father, now through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The picture is profoundly ugly, absolutely dreadful. My mom, when I was 12 years old, put in front of me a plate of steamed beets. I will tell you, there are some foods I absolutely will go to great lengths to avoid because they disgust me. She said to me, you will like it. She was wrong. I find certain foods absolutely repulsive. Now, somebody came to me after the, the 9 o'clock service and said, well, you haven't tried my wife's style of cooked beets. No, I'm telling you, I can't do it, right? There, there are some things I absolutely will avoid. The biblical description of sin, how it, it, it is so pervasive and the ensuing outcome of it is downright ugly. I make attempts to avoid steamed beets and I would just as soon believe they don't exist, but that does not change them. It does not eliminate their existence. I don't like the thought of the wrath of God. I don't like the thought of the ensuing outcome of sin. It is downright ugly. And yes, I can push it off. And yes, I can avoid it. I can even plug my spiritual nose and say, I don't even want to smell that. But ultimately, it doesn't make it any less real. It doesn't make it less existent. There is a superior reason why God caused Paul to write down Romans chapter 1, verse 18, regarding the wrath of God. Before I give you the superior reason, let me give you my analogy, because then the, the reason will make more sense. I don't know medicine. I never studied medicine. I go to professionals who do, and they understand it. But what I do know about medicine is this, a disease has to be identified before the cure means anything. Because an improper diagnosis can lead to the wrong cure. So you have to properly diagnose the disease in the same way and for the same reason. The Bible reveals a disease. In Romans, it makes it incredibly clear. God's judgment against sin is pronounced first 
before the cure is ever offered. That is deliberate on God's part. Why? Because a person who has a disease but doesn't know they have the disease will never look for the cure until someone points it out to them. Hey, there's something going wrong here. We need to treat this. So the Bible does that for us. The Bible shows us the disease first and then says, here's the cure. So here's the superior reason why God caused Paul to write down what he did in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Because we, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, count yourself in on this this morning. We cannot appreciate God's holy, holy, holiness. We cannot appreciate His love, His mercy, His grace until we see the consequence of sin and really understand it. So let's give a definition for sin. This is not in your notes this morning. You might want to write this down. You'll see it pop up on the screen. Here's what sin is. Sin is any action, any attitude, any action, any attitude contrary to the rule of God. I'm not talking about rules. I'm talking about the reign of God. Contrary to the character and the nature of God. Sin is any action, any attitude. You check it yourself, you'll see it to be true. Contrary to the character and the nature, the rule of God. So with the exception of Jesus Christ, every human born on this planet since Adam is born condemned into a sinful world. We're born into sin, condemned because of sin. That may be new news to you. Because this reason, when Adam sinned by one man, sin entered the world, the Bible says. When Adam sinned, a sentence was passed against all humanity. That's why Paul can write things like Romans 3.23. All have sinned. Not just some. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've just defined sin. Sin is any action, any attitude contrary to the rule of God, meaning we all have it because it infests our world. It is absolutely an unavoidable plague. Look with me on the screen at 1 John 1.8. You think you don't have sin? Watch God's Word. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, God says, you think you're not a sinner? You're a liar. Because God says you do. Because there is sin, there is wrath. Wrath is God's reaction to sin. So I gave you a sin definition. Let me give you a wrath definition this morning. You'll see that on the screen as well. Here's what wrath is. It's God's active opposition to everything opposed to him. God's active opposition to everything opposed to him. It's really important that we get those components down before we break apart verse 18. So let's jump now over into verse 18. God is determined that we understand this. Verse 18, Romans chapter 1 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now last week we discovered something else was revealed. We discovered that God's righteousness was revealed. Just let your eyes, if you have your Bible open, drift back up to verse 17 and look at verse 17 or you see it on the screen. It says there, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In, in what? Follow this thinking. What is the it? 
Paul said in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So God's revealed something. He's revealed his righteousness. And now we're told in verse 18, he's revealing his wrath. God's revealing some things. If by faith we accept that whatever God does is righteous, there's a caveat. I should check with you first. If you believe that whatever God does is righteous, would you say amen? amen. Okay. Maybe not everybody's convinced of that. But if you believe whatever God does is righteous, you must believe his wrath is also righteous. It's not evil. God's wrath is also righteous because everything he does is righteous. We just said, you're holy, holy, holy. You can't do things wrong. So his wrath must be righteous. We must believe his wrath is also righteous, not evil. So if you have your Bible open this morning and you're looking at verse 18, look at it really closely. And if you don't have the NIV, the New International Version, you see a very important word there, the word for. If you have the NIV, I'm sorry, they left the word out. If you have the NIV, New International Version, you might want to write the word for in there. Why they left it out, I don't know. But it is an incredibly important linchpin. Because the word for links this statement to the preceding statements. It gives the reason. See, he's introducing the reason why God revealed his wrath. Just catch this if I lost you on that. Mercy is meaningless except in relation to justice. That's why he's linking verses 16 and 17 with 18. See, the attempt to retain the concept of God just love. He just loves, loves, loves everybody. But he doesn't have any wrath. The, the attempt to retain the concept of God's love without the wrath is absolutely illogical. Verses 16 and 17 say, God revealed his gospel, his love for us, because the wrath of God is revealed. See, the gospel is necessary because there is a wrath of God. That's why the word for is so important. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ brings deliverance from his wrath. So the entire weight of verses 16 and 17 is anchored on the assumption that all humanity is under God's wrath. And apart from being under God's wrath, the gospel has no meaning. And this is going to shock you that I would say this, but then Jesus died for nothing. Why would he go to the cross if there wasn't the wrath of God, if there wasn't a need to be rescued, why would he die for us? So since the wrath of God is being revealed against all sin, that's what we're told, God's wrath is being revealed against sin, there is no way of salvation other than the way that deals with sin. That's the gospel. Somebody say amen to that. Okay, that's, that's the gospel. That's the only way to deal with sin. So there should be no doubt whatsoever about the close connection between the wrath in verse 18 and the rescue in verses 16 and 17. It's absolutely intentional. So here's what I hear God saying. Do you get it? Do you get it, new hope? It's absolutely unnecessary for anyone to be under my wrath because Jesus paid it all. He did everything, verses 16 and 17. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why, Paul says? Because the wrath of God is revealed. See, God cares so much. He acts and he reveals, meaning he's doing something. He's doing something in opposition to sin. God, we said the definition of wrath is anything that wrath is, it's God opposing things that oppose him. He's not leaving us alone to figure it out on our own. If that was the way God treated us, he'd just be an apathetic God, like, I don't really care. No, that's why wrath is so important, because he is active. Now, one more word before we go into the verse itself. It says it's, it's being revealed. It, it, it's revealed from heaven. Now, when we hear the word revealed, we think of something being made known, right? So I want you to see the, the word that's on the screen, and it's also in your notes this morning. It's this one Greek word, apocalypto. Immediately, some of you are thinking, well, that, that sounds a lot like apocalypse. You're right, and it's tracking. It's part of the, the thought of apocalypse, part of the base of that. Apocalypto is this lifting off the lid. You go home today and maybe somebody's cooking a meal and there's a pot simmering and you lift the lid off because, man, it smells good. And you're lifting the lid off to see what's inside. God says, I'm lifting the lid off. The word revealed is used both of righteousness and of wrath. Apocalypto of righteousness, apocalypto of wrath. In both words, the uncovering that Paul is speaking of in the Greek language is present passive. Now, why is that important? Because it means it's ongoing. It's not a one-time thing. God is doing this over and over and over again. How do I understand that? What, what evidence is there of this? If he's doing this, what does it look like? Well, last week we said specifically that God doesn't ask for faith without reason. God's not going to ask you to believe in something without giving you a reason to believe in it. The opposite of that is superstition. So we understand God's not asking us to believe in something despite the evidences. He says, I'm revealing something. There's evidences for this. So it must be that there are evidences of God's righteousness and evidences of God's wrath before our very eyes if we're willing to see it with spiritually attuned hearts. Let me give you an example of God's righteousness being revealed. Three weeks ago, talking with an individual who considered themselves to be absolutely agnostic, opposed, angry against God, as opposed to that exact same person who a week and a half ago professed themselves to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and put it all over Facebook and said, I've made Jesus my Lord and Savior. Okay, you're looking at the righteousness of God being revealed in the life of an individual, someone whom God said, I'm drawing that person into relationship. So if we can see the righteousness of God revealed because we have spiritually attuned hearts, it must also be because God says he's revealing something, we can see the wrath of God. And this is what I want to break it down into four quick components for you this morning. Go back with me to verse 18 now. You see section up on the screen. For the wrath of God. Here's the first one. The foundation of the wrath is this. Circle it in your Bible if you don't mind doing that. It's of God. The foundation of the wrath is it's of God. You know what that means? It means it's unlike anything that you and I know. It is vastly superior because God's wrath is not like human anger. Human anger is always tainted by sin. The difference between God's anger and man's anger 
is that his wrath flows from purity. We just said everything he does is righteous, right? We, we all said that in the room, most people. So if we believe that everything he does is righteous, that means his wrath can't flow from unrighteousness. So the difference between God's anger and ours is his flows from purity. Here's the difficulty for us. Humanly, wrath makes us think of the severest form of anger. And so immediately, our minds go to like reality TV and to the news headlines, and we begin thinking of individuals who are absolutely emotionally unhinged. And they begin killing people. Or they they bring out violent assault against other individuals. We think of wrath that way. And an image of someone who's completely out of control is what we naturally attach to God because there's a temptation to give God human images because it's all we know. And we could not be farther from the truth. God's wrath is always righteous. He never loses control. He does not rage. Human wrath is vindictive. Human wrath is intent on harming. God's wrath is revealed from heaven because he desires to draw people in, saying, pay attention, are you getting it? Do you understand why there's wrath? So that can draw you in, so you will see me, so you understand who I am. See, it is absolutely unwise, I'll even say unbiblical, to attempt to measure God by human standards. But then dismiss the idea of his wrath simply because human anger is flawed. So we love, 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 love God, saying God's love, but immediately begin thinking of his wrath, saying no, he can't be wrathful because I know what wrath is and that can't be who God is. God's wrath is the only response a holy God can have towards evil. Last week we talked about God being 100% love. If you believe that God is 100% love, say amen. Okay. But we also said God is 100% wrath. See, he can't be diminished in any way, in any capacity, or he isn't God. God cannot be holy and not stand against evil because holiness cannot tolerate unholiness. Look with me on the screen, Habakkuk 1.13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. When we think of wrath of God, we start thinking Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we start thinking... Noah and the earth being destroyed by a flood. We, we think of the Egyptians and, and the Ten Commandments and all of the plagues that got brought against them. That's wrath of God. You know, we think Old Testament wrath of God, but I don't see the wrath of God in the New Testament. Where is that coming from? Well, most individuals are not really looking very closely. Let me give you a verse that's quite familiar to the majority of individuals who go to church. Look with me on the screen at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, let's read this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Love it, right? Great verse. It's the rescue. Yet chapter three, just a few verses later, the same author writes this in verse 36. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
Okay, the wrath is in the New Testament. We just have to have spiritually attuned hearts to look at it. Why does it abide on him? Because we're born into a fallen planet. We're born into sin because of what Adam and Eve did. Now, let's take this component. We've already looked at the origin of wrath. Let's step it up one more notch and go to the timing of the wrath. Look one more time on the screen, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You could even write in your Bible, is being revealed, if that would help you to remember it, because it's talking about something that's ongoing. Present passive, like I described. So we're talking about the timing of God's wrath. It's better rendered constantly revealed. God's wrath is continually being revealed. How is that possible, Mark? Here's where we need to be tuned in. God's wrath first appeared on the scene in the Garden of Eden. Everything's perfect. Everything was as good as God said it was. And at the end of the sixth day, he said, it's not just good, it's very good. Sin not present, man not fallen, disease not known. But God gives a caveat to the man and the woman saying, do not eat of, or in the day that you eat of, you will surely die. They didn't know death, but God said don't do it, so they know it's something they're not supposed to do. The tempter shows up on the scene, Satan, and says, did God really say that? Because God knows in the day that you eat of it, you're going to become wise, knowing good from evil. You will be as God. They trusted the serpent's words over God's words. They didn't believe God's word. And immediately the death sentence was passed on all humanity. God said, you do it, you're going to die. And we began aging Man and women began decaying. God said to Adam, you will now earn your meals for your family by the sweat of your brow. Check me on it. Go back and read Genesis chapter 3 today. From now on, Adam, you will not have access to the garden. You will raise crops from the soil and you will do it by the sweat of your brow and it will be hard because the ground is cursed because of you. And Eve, you're going to bring forth children in pain. Ladies, you bring forth children in pain? You know, you know, you, know, you think immediately, thanks, Eve. God's curse came upon us at that point, and death was the result. That is one of the evidences of the wrath of God being poured out in order to call people back into relationship. I did a funeral here yesterday. Why? Because death has taken over. God pronounced that it would. But hear me on this, and this may shock you, but death is not natural. Death is not what God intended. We say it's natural today because it's all we know, but God intended us not to suffer decay, not to die. But in the day that you eat of it, you will die, Adam. Trust me, believe me. And that makes sense why we have what we have in the way of a fallen planet today. Immediately, the earth goes into groaning mode. So not just that we die, not just that we suffer, not that just we get sick and get disease and diminish and need surgeries and doctors and medicine, but also that this planet that we live on, it's screaming out too. 
It's groaning. I can back that up from Scripture. Look with me on the screen. Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Check verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans. Earthquakes, tsunamis, storms that rage against us. Why do things not work right? If you've been alive any length of time, you're wondering, what. Why do relationships fall apart? Why do I get flat tires? Why do I need my eyes fixed? The creation groans. Look at God's word and what God's word says about this creation. It was subjected to futility because of him who subjected it. Who's the him, church? God. Satan wouldn't subject it to futility in hope. God subjected it to futility in hope. Hope means promise. Hope means future. Not hoping in hope, but hoping in something that hasn't been revealed yet. God's saying there's hope coming in Jesus that will rescue the planet, that will make life make sense again. In the meantime, we're living on a a fallen planet, so the creation groans in subjection. God did it. So we've seen the origin of wrath. We've seen the timing of wrath. Let's look at the third one. There's only four of these. Here's the third one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we're talking about the extent of wrath here. The all is critically important. You have your Bible open, circle the word all. That all means there's no exceptions. There's nothing overlooked. Question. Does God wink at sin? I think you didn't hear me. Does God wink at sin? What about, what about even like white lies or, or fibs? Does God wink at that? See, if he did, his righteousness could be called into question. And he would be an apathetic God. So even the smallest sin, God cannot wink at. He cannot just dismiss. We can never say God does not mind some evils. We cannot dismiss sin in our own personal life by saying God understands. No, he does not. God does not dismiss sin. All ungodliness, all unrighteousness. His wrath is revealed against every wrong. He will not be apathetic that way. That which is right necessarily stands against that which is wrong. Romans 3.23 again, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, obviously, some people are morally better than others. I think I'm in an auditorium of people who are morally better than those who are in ISIS in the Middle East slaughtering people. Obviously, some people are morally better than others, but even the most moral among us falls far short 
of the glory of God. We just do because we don't measure up to God's perfect standard of holy, holy, holy. Woe to me, I'm undone for my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of glory. Kill me now. That's what Isaiah said. I can't even be in his presence. That's how holy he is. If you come in here this morning and you think we're talking about the wrath of God and I really want to understand what does that mean to people who are behaving unrighteously on this planet now? What is going on with that? Why is there so much friction between people? Why is there this issue in Dallas and Baton Rouge and shootings in Florida, in Germany, in France, people getting mowed over? How do I understand that? Understand it this way. Because man's relationship to God is wrong, Man's relationship to fellow man is wrong. Because we're in a fallen planet, we're surrounded by sin. So man treats man the way they do because they treat God the way they do. Man's enmity with his fellow man originates originates with being at enmity with God. So we've seen the origin of wrath, we've seen the timing of wrath, we've seen the extent of the wrath against all ungodliness. Let's look at the very last one. Go back with me to verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is as far as we're going to get today. Can't possibly get to verse 19. I know, you're crushed, right? We're setting it up, though, so that we really understand. Here's the last one. The, The cause of the wrath. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. How do I understand that? Here's a common question that's asked of me when I get to talk to high school students or college, college students especially. love to ask this question. Explain to me, how is it possible that God can hold everyone on the planet responsible and be angry against them when some people don't even have the kind of information to allow them to have a relationship with God? How is it possible that God can hold them responsible when they can't even hear what it is to come to know God? Hear the answer. But allow me to process the answer with you. Here's the answer. Because the sin nature that we have within us, because of the sin nature, the fallenness, every person is naturally inclined to resist God. I know that doesn't sound like an answer, but just hear me out. The Bible is incredibly clear. All humanity, everyone ever born, has internal, God-given evidence within them of his existence and his nature. He says in his own word, I have placed eternity within the heart of man. Meaning we know there's more to life than this. We just know it innately. But because of our sin nature, we are inclined to suppress it, to resist it even to the degree that some assault the evidence. So people are guilty because of the sin against the truth they do have, not against the truth they do not have. You want to hear that again? We're guilty because we sin against the truth we do have, not against the truth we don't have. Because God's word is really, really clear. No matter how little spiritual light someone has, God guarantees, and God doesn't lie, right, church? God guarantees that someone who's sincerely seeking him, they're going to find him. Look with me on the screen. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me. When? 
when you search for me with all your heart. That's talking about a sincere person. Drawing, drawing, draw, just drawn into trying to discover who is this one. But the problem is because of the sin nature, man is not naturally inclined to seek God. Here's the best evidence I can give you for it. You can see it in Jesus' life when he's on planet earth. They've got God in the flesh in front of them, doing things that no one can explain. No one has ever done. No one has ever stood on the back of the boat in the midst of a storm with raging seas and said, be still. And the sea went completely quiet and the wind stopped and people's jaws dropped open and said, who is this that commands even the seas? And they obey him. They've got God in the flesh. And yet Jesus says, even though I'm right here, man is naturally drawn to the dark things. Look with me on the screen. John 3, 19. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. See, man opposes the idea of a holy God innately because we realize God's going to hold us accountable. And because man refuses to respond to that evidence that we've got within us, they're under the wrath of God, refusing God. Okay, we've seen the four components. Let's land this plane now. Let's come in to the home port understanding why Paul has shown this to us. Paul has shown us very specifically, it is in the gospel that the revelation occurs, that it's made revealed to us because of the magnitude of the fallenness, because of the magnitude of the sin. The gospel is necessary because of God's wrath. That means this, church, forgiveness from God is no cheap gesture. Forgiveness from the holy, holy, holy God is no cheap, simple thing. It's as costly as the cross. And the cross is meaningless without the wrath of God. There's no purpose in the cross without the wrath because it's the cross that shows us the measure of God's wrath. God's gospel, that's what Paul calls it in Romans 1. Romans 1.1, the gospel of God. God's gospel is available to everyone who has not yet confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord because if they haven't done it, they're still under the wrath of God for all eternity, let alone this fallen planet. Let me remind you of what we just saw a minute ago. John 3, 36. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Maybe be really, really clear as we close. God hates sin. He does not hate rich people. He does not hate poor people. He does not hate the intelligent or the foolish. He does not hate the wise or the unwise, the skilled or the unskilled. God does not hate people. God hates sin that people do, and that brings the wrath. I will argue with you 
that God's wrath is an expression of his love. That may be very hard for you to process. This quote I'm about to show you is especially hard to process. Depending on your framework and your thinking. Look with me on the screen at C.E. Cranfield's statement. He's a theologian from London that just died a couple years ago. Brilliant insight. His wrath is not something which is inconsistent with his love. Just chew on that for a second. Wrath, love, how can they be consistent? He's saying it's not inconsistent. It's not inconsistent with his love. On the contrary, it's an expression of his love. It is precisely because he loves us truly and seriously and faithfully that he is wroth with us in our sinfulness. Absolutely. Absolutely accurate. I will argue with you that the wrath of God revealed from heaven is an evidence of his love. God's saying, I'm not leaving you on your own to figure this out. It's because I'm angry with sin, I reveal it from heaven to draw you back into relationship so that you will pay attention. By far, the surpassing greatest revelation of God's wrath is what we witness on the cross when God poured out the wrath upon Jesus Christ. God hates sin so profoundly that when Jesus agreed to take the sin of the world upon him by dying on the cross for our sins, God killed his own son. The wrath of God poured out on him for this one purpose, to the glory of God that man might be redeemed and brought back into relationship with God. Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross. Why? So that I won't experience it. So that I won't experience the wrath of God. So that you won't experience the wrath of God for all eternity. Which means eternal separation from God. That's why he did it. That's how I know we can end with good news, church. Go back with me to Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, right? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You better say amen. I mean, that's just like off the charts, right? Even if you're just swelling up with inside you. Yeah. Amen, amen, amen. You're saying truth when you say amen. It's true, it's true, it's true. God's word is true. Saved from the wrath of God through him. That's the rescue. That's God's plan. And it's the only way. That's what God's really clear about. If you choose to accept it, you can be certain, God says, guaranteed, of being saved from the wrath of God. That's good news. Let me pray with you to seal this in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you don't allow us to quickly dismiss this or misunderstand it and that your Holy Spirit would be especially near to us in these moments. God, that we just not start reaching for our phones and our keys and thinking, I'm almost out of here. Father, if we need to stay and linger, force us, push on our our conscience to process this 
That we not quickly move through our day, but God, rather that we've encountered you as the holy, holy, holy God and you've spoken loud and clear, we ask that you would bring that to bear. For those who are believers in Jesus, that we would be even more bold about what we know to be true. And for those who are working through this, God, that they would process it to the degree that they realize who they are before you and fall on their knees and ask for the forgiveness that you offer for the life in Jesus Christ. Father, I ask for individuals who are watching online and in the auditorium, for myself, press this deeply on our hearts. Thank you for bringing the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place to teach us. And we thank you in the name of the one who bought us back. His name is Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Typically, I, I send you out with a have a great week, right? That, that seems really shallow to me in light of what we just did. So I'm going to ask you to do this. Would you stand up right where you're at? When I was a kid, this is the way my pastor used to do it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a great week.